This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. It dies and the um, lights go up, so it is time to start. Welcome, everybody, in your vast numbers. Not surprising, um, but very welcome uh, to both of us. Um, it's an enormous pleasure to welcome Tam Diel here um, and to thank RBS for sponsoring this event, um, which means you're sponsoring it, I think, more or less. But, um, but the... But... Uh, I speak as an RBS customer, and that was said with, well, not exactly with love, but with respect. Anyway, we are most grateful uh, because uh, these events depend on the support of friends and businesses in Edinburgh and in the wider world. It's an enormous pleasure to welcome Tam for all sorts of reasons. He is, of course, a distinguished public figure, a man distinguished, I suppose, by, by passion above everything else, passion in principle, passion for his country, and by that I mean, I think, Scotland and the UK in different ways, which we may explore as we go on. Passion, of course, for his family, for his house, for the history of his family, and a passion about Parliament. He is also, of course, one of the great irritants of our age. <laughs> and I dare say some of you have come here in order to be irritated yet again. I hope you will not be disappointed. I give you Tamdiel. <clears throat> Tam, we're here to talk about the book splendidly entitled The Importance of Being Awkward. Your former colleague, Bob Marshall Andrews, from the Labour benches in the Commons, was absolutely furious. He'd struggled to get a title, which he thought was absolutely pathetic, and he picked up your book, and he said, no, he's done it again. It's perfect. But the other thing that's perfect is a foreword by your friend and my friend, Peter Hennessy. And it, typically, Peter, it's absolutely to the point. And it says at the end, you'll be interested in this. He talks about um, Tam Diel's temperament, his political um, life. And he says at the end, the pages are the man, which is true. I'm so pleased he has put himself on paper. If he hadn't, it would have been impossible to explain Tam to generations to come. <laughs> now, that's where I want to start. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> I like a man who answers the questions he's being asked. It's a rare experience. Um, why? What's changed in your political life? The House of Commons has changed in this sense that when I was first elected in June 1962, there was only one colleague who could be said to be a professional politician. It was a nice man called Carol Johnson, who for years had been secretary of the Parliamentary Labour Party. Now, there are a whole number of colleagues whose career pattern has been university, uh, research assistant, uh, some kind of functionary as a political officer of a trade union, uh, contests an unwinnable seat, uh, is promoted uh, as a research uh, assistant, and then falls in to a safe seat. Now, that happens in all parties. And 
Had I ever been successful in the private members' bills between Jim numbers 5 and 15, I wouldn't have squandered no. the, the, top the, real, the top spots. No, that would have been wrong. But had I been kite flying, it would have been to introduce a bill to make it unlawful for anyone to stand for the House of Commons unless they'd had five years of experience in a job unrelated to politics. And, in that and incidentally, yes. being a housewife is a job. It's interesting, if you look back at the early years, which you talk about, uh, up to your by-election in uh, West Lothian, as it then was, in 62, the House of Commons into which you came was a place that would be unrecognizable to most of its members today. Sure. How would you characterize it then when you arrived? And you often refer to Harold Macmillan as my first prime minister. And you, you're not being grand when you say that, but it's the way you felt about it. No. Uh, Harold Macmillan uh, was very kind to a lot of young MPs. Uh, no, I'm not being grand about it. No, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm saying, yeah. But it, that's what it was like. It was a different kind of place. It certainly was a different kind of place. And of course, Prime Minister's questions were different because one didn't have this absurd business of asking the Prime Minister uh, to state his or her engagements, which of course allows mm. an MP to ask anything. And how Mrs Thatcher loved that because yeah. she could dominate it. Yeah. Now, in those days, Macmillan would transfer any question to the Prime Minister other than those on macroeconomic policy, security, defence and foreign affairs. And if he wanted to be really cutting, when someone asked him a question geared to the constituency local paper, Macmillan would say, that is a matter from my honourable friend, the Parliamentary Secretary for Works. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to go back to this time because it makes the point, and we'll talk about Prime Ministers, I hope, in a minute, uh, all of them whom you've known and, and, and watched. It was a different kind of House of Commons. How did you begin to get a grip of what the role of the backbencher should be? Because much of the book, when you get onto your the meat of your parliamentary life, is about the joy you took in being an awkward so-and-so. When did you begin to realize that that was what a backbencher was for? Or does it just come naturally? <laughs> no, it didn't come naturally. I'll tell you, I was put at a very young age by Harold Wilson, who was then chairman, on the Public Accounts Committee. And my first taste, shall we say, of being awkward was when two people from Harrison's, who were then the big Scottish building contractors, uh, came to my house. 
The names were Alec Gillis, uh, Alec Gillis and Alec Mulholland. And they said, we are very unhappy about a contract that has been given to a small firm in Montrose for the building of the first section of the new town of Livingston. And would I put down a parliamentary question about this? Well, rather than put down a desultory parliamentary question that could have been brushed off, um, Tam here decided that he would use his membership of the PAC to persuade the chairman, who by that time uh, was Douglas Houghton, Lord Houghton of Sowerby, yeah. uh, to ask the Scottish office to explain themselves. Now, rather than having a desultory parliamentary question... Brushed off in 30 seconds. Brushed off in 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, Sir Douglas Haddo, Sir David Lowe, the chairman of the Development Corporation, and other grandees of the Scottish office had to take the night train to come to London the following morning. Uh, they were not pleased. And you thought, this is good. <laughs> I thought that it was extremely effective yes. uh, to be careful and, of course, polite. Yes. Because courtesy is everything. And if you're not courteous about these things, you suffer. You have been thrown out of the House of Commons for being rude more often than any other MP, however. No. Never rude. Never rude. Never, I never name-called, and I was never rude. But you were thrown out. I was thrown out five times. Yes. Why? I'll tell you. Persistence. No. Accuracy. <laughs> Actually. Yep. No, the first occasion was concerning the Falklands, not on the sinking of the Belgrano as such, but on Mrs. Thatcher saying that she had no knowledge of the Peruvian peace proposals uh, before the time that she instructed Admiral of the Fleet, Lord Lewin, mm. uh, to go ahead and sink that ship. I believed that this wasn't true. I went, incidentally, at my own expense, yes. I make no, uh, no, no absolutely. Uh, capital out of this, but yes. to be clear, to Peru to see President Bella Undi Terry and, more importantly, the Prime Minister of Peru at the time. His name was Manuel Elias Oloa, and Oloa had on his own typewriter typed out what these proposals were. And he told me exactly how Mrs. Thatcher knew, not only through Ambassador Wallace, but also through Professor Hugh Thomas. I, I remember this vividly because I was sitting at home in my flat in London. I worked for the Scotsman in those days, as you remember. And the I phone, remember very well. And Jim. the phone rang. <laughs> and. Um, it was a ghastly hour of the morning. I think it was four o'clock, and I picked up the phone, thinking, you know, who's died, sort of thing. 
and it was you on the end of the phone. I thought, what on earth are you ringing me at four in the morning? And you said, I'm in, I think you were in Mexico City by this time. You'd got the time wrong. And you said, do you remember the piece you wrote in the Scotsman two months ago? And I said, no, it's four o'clock in the morning. And you said, well, I've just seen the president of Peru and he's furious. And I thought, what have I done? I hadn't mentioned the president of Peru. And it, I have to say, it took you about... Three Not Mexico City, Lima. Yes, three, uh, Lima. Three quarters of an hour to, to explain. But anyway, it was very good at the time. Um, now, look, you mentioned the Belgrana. We, I, I want to take you through the, the way that your uh, political personality and your, your outlook and your style develop, because it's, it's fascinating. If you, by 1970, you had been uh, a member for eight years, you'd established yourself, you knew all the leading figures in the Labour Party, if the Labour Party had won the 1970 election, do you think you would have been offered a ministerial job? And if you had have been offered that job, would you have taken it? Answer to your second question, yes, I would have taken it. Answer to the first question is more problematic because Harold, Harold Wilson liked me. But you had a good relationship, you, didn't you? Excellent relationship with him, yes. But, but, but um, he um, was, shall we say, sensitive to the criticism of me from a number of Scottish colleagues, but in particular, Willie Ross. Because you were a loose cannon. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and Willie Ross knew it. Yes. You have a story in the book about, I think, Frank McElhone when he became a minister, and he went along to Willie Ross and said, what'll I do? And Willie Ross yes, said, he... what did he say? <laughs> Willie Ross, in an accent that I sh shan't attempt to imitate, to told Frank McElhone, you'll do as you're told. The schoolmaster. Um, so you didn't Fr become Frank a minister. Frank McElhone was marvellous. Right. He was a Gorbals greengrocer. Yeah. And a very good MP, incidentally. We get into the 70s. You had a good relationship with Wilson. Um, he, the Heath government obviously was there until, until early 74. Yeah. There was then a period in the Labour Party's history which, you know, was not a glorious period of government from 74 to 76. And then there was the period of the Lib Lab Pact. And then there was our old friend, the Scotland and Wales Bill, and then the Scotland Bill. Um, I just want to touch on this briefly because it may possibly come up in questions. Um, looking back on that period and the crusade that you pursued against devolution, would you take back anything? Nothing. Why? Because um, I stick to it that what I thought in 1978, I still think in 2011... That there is the union the, or there is independence. It's a motorway without exit. And I will tell you why. Because it is in the nature of parliaments, once you have established them, that they ask for more and more and more. And you see, it's not only the SNP, no, no, quite. but of course it's the Labour Party, it's the Liberals, and, 
Annabel, Goldie and all but we who could, want more. As you well know, we could talk about this until Sunday morning, but, uh, and, and we shouldn't easily. Yeah, I, mean, I mean a week on Sunday, actually. But, uh, yeah. but, but, but let me ask you this. I mean, the, the difficulty is that um, even some people who might accept the logic of your argument about the acquisitive nature of parliaments, because that is the nature of yeah. the beast, would say, well, people really did want it. They felt it was unsatisfactory. And what has happened since, whatever you feel are the consequences of it, demonstrates that a sufficient majority of people in Scotland uh, wanted something which is roughly of the sort that we've got now um, that they felt was um, uh, an answer to their aspirations. And therefore, it was the duty of a democratic parliament to give it to them whatever the consequences. What do you make of that argument? Look, I take you back to what makes politicians tick. And I'll put it in the form of a tale that I recount in the book. It's a tale of Mrs. Barbara Castle. Now, I'm not anti-Barbara Castle. In her diaries, her rather acerbic diaries, she referred to that nice Tamdiel. So how could I be? Yes. But on your program, the early morning BBC, Barbara Castle, in October 1971, went on the radio to say that Dick Mabon, George Thompson, and Tamdiel were traitors to the Labour Party. Because of your pro-European views. Because we were going into the same lobby as Edward Heath on that night of October the 28th, yes. uh, 1971. Yes, on the vote on the EEC. On the vote on the EEC. Fast forward five years. James Callaghan becomes Prime Minister, decides to drop Barbara from his cabinet. One of his first decisions. One of his first decisions, predicted. Indeed. Indeed. But, being a decent man, uh, they make arrangements for her to lead the first Labour delegation to the directly elected European Parliament. Jim, not within months, within weeks, what is she saying? that there must be more powers for the Parliament. And that she should be in it. Because our Barbara's there. <laughs> and that is what happens in any Parliament. It's where they are. The trouble, now, the trouble Tam, yeah. is that's an argument against reform of yeah. the Lords, for example. Yeah, but... Let's not go the there. The trouble is also that there comes a point where the English are not going to have it. Do you remember... Tuition fees, yeah. better conditions for the elderly, all estimable things. You were, as many but people in danger. this room will have been, a student of the Scotsman letter pages in the late 70s and early 80s, when they were a magnificent notice board for opinion. And you remember the letters which used to arrive regularly from a Mr. A. Burt of Greenock. Archie Burt of Greenock. And admirable he, man. And he always said in his letter, what happens if England says no? 
Yes. And there would be a letter the next day from Anthony J.C. Kerr of 52 Castlegate, Jedburgh, <laughs> taking the other view. But anyway, we, we're, we're all sort of in the same neck of the woods here. But, but look, let's, before we get, uh, I don't want to get bogged down in that because it's, it's a wonderful, facet. well, I know. Um, but that's why I want to get you out of it. I'm doing you a favor. I want to talk about the Thatcher years and the Blair years because they're central uh, themes in your book. And, and they touch on this question of the nature of politics, the nature of political leadership, and your observations on how that has changed over the years. Now, you tell a wonderful story in the book of going to a diplomatic dinner, the South American ambassador in Chester Square, who lived two doors along the Colombian ambassador, Victor Mrs. Ricardo. Thatcher, as she then was. And he invited you in the formal way that they have to escort her into dinner because she was a next door neighbor. And you hadn't spoken to her for whatever it was. And 17 been, years. And you'd been. <laughs> And you had been thrown. I used to be very friendly. And you had been thrown out of the House of Commons several times for calling her, not calling her rude names, but for no. asserting that she wasn't telling the truth. Saying that she had not told the truth. Precisely. On particular occasions. Exactly. In relation to the Peruvian peace. I would never accuse and you. And in relation to Westland. Precisely. And I wouldn't accuse you. Selective leaking of a law officer's letter. Um, Leon Britton, Michael Heseltine, Bannadingham, look it up. Anyway. Um, so you took her arm and you led her into dinner. What did you say to each other? I was um, very polite. Of course. And said, Margaret, I'm very sorry that your head has been damaged. Do you remember I do. that there was the attack on her sculpture yes. at the Guildhall? It's a rather good way and of putting she, it. And she said... She got it immediately, I assume. She said very nicely, well, she's sorry, not for herself, but for the sculptor. <laughs> Sitting down, I said, Margaret, just tell me one thing. Why is it in 800 pages? And she purred, and she said, have you read my autobiography? Yeah. I said, Margaret, I read it very carefully. Did she then say, oh dear? What? No, she did not. I said then, why is it that you didn't mention Lockerbie once? Because I didn't know about it. I said, you didn't know about it. But you went up there, you looked into the first officer, Captain Wagner's eyes. You did the absolutely the proper thing. Yes, she said. But um, I don't know exactly what happened. And I don't write about things where I don't know what happened. Did that surprise you? Not in the least. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because I was clear by that time that she'd been told by the Americans that they simply did not want any kind of public inquiry. I mean, remember that Jim Swire and John Mosey and Bill Cadman, the relatives, had gone to Parkinson, the transport yes, secretary. Sir. The transport secretary had agreed to having a public inquiry. And just going out of the room, he said, well, I've got to clear it uh, with colleagues. Fortnight later, he went back to them sheepishly 
and said, I'm afraid colleagues don't agree. Colleagues plural, but well, we know what that there meant. was only one colleague, and she didn't agree, because no one else was then going to tell, at that time, Cecil Parkinson what to do in his own department. Um, again, you know, we could take a long time going into the details, but uh, the whole McGrathy affair has been gone over, of course, in enormous detail yeah. in recent months for obvious reasons. Um, do you still believe, despite everything, that on the charges on which he was put up... He's not he guilty as charged. I mean, he, he was an operative in the Libyan apparatus. You've no argument with that, I take it. Well, I have the argument that the people who did it uh, were the gangs of Jibril and Abu Nidal. Well, the, the Popular Front for yes. the Liberation of Palestine. Popular Front for the Gen Liberation of Palestine General Command. And one of the reasons why the Commission said that the, the verdict wasn't safe was this little matter of the bill of $10 million, uh, which was paid into the coffers of the PFLGC on 23rd of um, December 1988, two days after Lockerbie. Uh, that swayed the commissioners who looked at it. Let me ask you, I, I want to talk about Thatcher and Blair particularly, but, but, but let me ask you about this business of campaigns. I mean, we all know about them. We had the turtles of Aldabra, yeah. and I dare say that, you know, that gets a big cheer from everybody. Don't forget the flightless but, rail or the pig-footed booby. Uh, <laughs> how could I? Um, we had devolution, of course, famously. Uh, we had the Belgrano. Um, we've had Lockerbie. We've had various other things, and I want to come to them in a moment. Which is the one on which you thought you were most right, and which is the one about now which you have perhaps some doubts? Um, what I have doubts about is the decision to support Michael Foote. You think this is your biggest mistake? I, th I think it was a huge mistake. Why did you do it? This is, we're well, talking about the leadership election in, uh, the crucial in 1981. The crucial leadership election. Um, Kathleen was furious with me. And in retrospect, as often, rightly so. But you know, what I thought at the time was that uh, Dennis Healy, who was a bruiser, would create terrible difficulties in the Labour Party, um, internally in the Labour Party. Also, I confess, and it really is a confession, that I was disproportionately upset. I'm upset about few things. But he had said that I had a tiny Chinese mind. I think he was referring to a group of people of whom you were one. <laughs> yes, maybe. that's right. Yes. Well, it was the left in general. And um, we weren't best pleased. No. I don't think you were meant to be. I'm jolly sure. No. But anyway, you voted for Michael Foote, and you think it was a mistake. Yes. But what I, well, what I think is it was a huge mistake, because Michael Foote, not in a month of Sundays, would have won the election. What I Did you know that before you no, voted for I him? No, what I also think is, and here I'm in a minority view, 
that had he become prime minister, that Michael Foote actually would have been a rather good prime minister. But he was never and going I'll to And I'll tell be. you why. Because mm. he could delegate pretty well. Um, as on devolution, which I think you would agree with me, he didn't know much about. Nothing. And told John Smith to get on with it. Well, John Smith, I mean, uh, John Smith was a close friend. Yeah. Uh, but he was Mr. Gallican's attorney uh, on devolution. And he used to hate it, you know, when you got up behind him on the PPS's bench and you, he heard the car keys rattling in your pocket. <laughs> and he knew, here he goes again. And the committee stage, you remember those committee stages, it went on night after night after night for it seemed two years. For, well, you see, Jim, Jim Callaghan was absolutely happy that we should chunter on. Yeah. Because he was trying to get the economy straight. And you nobly chuntered. Absolutely. Yes. And I mean, Jim was very cynical about this because I'd been chairman of the Parliamentary Labour Party Foreign Affairs Group. Hmm. And as such, when he was Foreign Secretary, had to go and see him uh, every Wednesday evening. And on several occasions, I said, look, Jim, as a senior member of the cabinet, can I talk to you about devolution in Scotland? Don't bother me with that nonsense, he said. Tell me what the party is thinking about Cyprus. Uh, let's go, because I, I want to, one of the campaigns that you got onto, and, and Peter Hennessy makes this point in the introduction, very early on, uh, was the business of nuclear proliferation and the dangers which it posed. Yeah. And the name of A.Q. Khan, which may be familiar to some people, but not all in the room. I mean, set the scene just very briefly, and I know you're going to read a short passage from the book on this particular uh, point that you spotted and grabbed with your traditional yes, tenacity. But in the winter of 1979, there was one matter which niggled me ever increasingly. At the time of writing, in 2011, it is clear that hugely important and sensitive international considerations flow from the fact that Dr. Abdul Qatar Khan was not only the father of the Pakistani bomb, but the purveyor of nuclear know-how to North Korea and Iran. It need not have been so. If I parade in detail, it is because I ask the reader to believe, not on account of the smug, I told you so syndrome, but to demonstrate something else, that governments pay increasingly little heed to what happens in the House of Commons. Repeatedly, I raised this in questions, and I initiated a debate at five, 12 minutes past five in the morning, going into inordinate detail on what this research student was up to at the centrifuge uh, center yeah. at Al Mello. And what happened as a result? Uh, as a result, and I was the, at that time on good terms with Mrs. Thatcher, I saw her in the corridor and I said, Prime Minister, I hope you don't think that uh, using questions to ask about the activities of uh, this research student is an abuse. 
And she said, I don't think it's an abuse. I will look at it. And gave the whole impression that without wanting to stir up bad relations with Pakistan, she would deal with it. Now, in the book, I go into yes, a, a great deal of detail. But the end of it is that Robin Butler, the Secretary of the Cabinet, and Michael Quinlan, the late and lamented Michael Quinlan, one of the great civil servants of our time, did not know that this had been raised. And it had been raised time and again. The and to make the point yes. that there was a gap between Westminster and Whitehall. Well, and the point you make about the Blair years is that, of course, the chickens came home to roost on that particular question. And how? Well, the whole question of Iran and North Korea having nuclear weapons. And had something been done earlier, as I say in the book, it need not have been so. How do you feel about Tony Blair now? Well, I'll put it this way. That I was asked by one of your colleagues um, about prime ministers. And I said that I had a high regard for Harold Macmillan and for Harold Wilson. That I thought that two short-term prime ministers, Alec Douglas Hume and Jim Callaghan, had done very well. Uh, that I'd gone in to the common market lobby with Edward Heath and found it much easier to talk to him than many of his colleagues. Because he thought he was right on that question. Yeah. Uh, that I was a personal friend of John Major. And Michael Crow it was, um, said, and who was the worst prime minister? Expecting me to say Margaret Thatcher. And I said, Tony Blair. Well, the government chief whip was a little pained. But be that, be that as it may. You're used to that. Then your colleague uh, on the Today program, Mr. John Humphreys, uh, said to me... 68 today. 68, well, he wasn't 68 then. No, no. <laughs> no, he hasn't changed, I'll tell you that, no. And he said more aggressively than you would, Mr. Deal, you said a year ago that Tony Blair was the worst prime minister. Have you changed your mind, said Mr. Humphreys. And I Silly said, question to ask you. I said, yes, Mr. Humphreys. Oh. I have changed my mind. By far the worst. <laughs> <laughs> now, and that is my opinion. Well, let me just um, go into that just a little bit. Um, precisely why it seems to me that there are two aspects to this. Because One he was asked direct questions on which he told direct lies. Mm. Time and again, Bob Marshall Andrews and I and others mm. asked him about the events in Crawford, Texas in 2002 so and the undertaking to the Bush given Ranch. to the President of the United so, States. So, uh, I mean, you believe, your case uh, against Tony Blair is that he had made up his mind and he denied that he had. Yes, repeatedly. And he was asked the right question directly. And my case against him is that he was far too cavalier about sending other people's brothers, fathers, and sons mm. 
to war without knowing much about it. You and incidentally, against a lot of military advice, and I won't have it that I'm in any way against the British services, I wear the tie of the Scots Greys. A regiment raised by your ancestor. Well, that's by the way. Well, it's not by the way. It's an interesting fact. Yeah, right. But, but the fact of the matter is that those who have experience of the forces are far more careful about committing to war. And I think he knew very, very little about Iraq and what he was doing. There's another point here, which is about the, the way that it's, it's the point at which we started, really, about the way that politics has changed. And it seems to me that the case you make against Blair, uh, of course, is focused on your assertion that there was a direct lie told to the Commons. But it goes wider than that. It's about a, a sort of dislocation between the executive and the parliament to which yes. you are so devoted. Good point. Now, um, how do you get that back, if it's true? That is a very interesting question. And I think it's up to the new generation of MPs uh, to make sure that they scrutinize the Downing Street apparatus are they up to the part, job? Are I'll they up to you, the job? Part of the trouble in all this, is we go back to these open prime minister's questions. Mm. When you have this silly business of asking a prime minister to uh, state his or her engagements, it means that they can go around and say to every minister in the cabinet and all permanent secretaries, tell us in detail about your department. Mm. Now, a prime but it's all there in the book, so they can oh, look and, it up. And this gives power to the Downing Street apparatus and special advisors who are an abomination in my kind, in my view. And um, trust... Is that a former minister clapping trust there? I don't know. Trust should be given to the civil servants. Mm. And um, civil servants are very loyal. Well. It, one of the interesting points about you, I think, for those of us who've watched you, as it were, professionally over the years, is that you embody a mixture of suspicion, um, wariness, uh, an ability to be extremely tough and tenacious when you think you're right, with also um, a deep respect for institutions where yeah. you think they are being properly run. Of course. And, you know, I've heard you say, for example, on occasions, he would never lie, he's a knight of the garter. I remember you saying that about somebody, I mean, it was Carrington or You'd something, have to I can't tell remember. Me which well, it was probably Peter Carrington, but anyway. I would say that but, about Peter Carrington, but not because he was a knight of the garter. Well, no, but I mean, I'm, I'm making a, I mean, you're putting me on the spot, but I'm making a general point. You, you do have, uh, you're not an iconoclast in the sense no. that you want to uh, dismantle institutions if they're working well. What you cannot bear is the sight of an institution whose servants refuse to serve it properly. Yes. Thank you. I would, no, I, I take that, actually. 
Do you think as that's a, true? As a great compliment. You think it's true? Yes, I do think it's true. How much of that comes from the depth of your respect for your own family history, which is very powerful, a wonderful house, uh, an extraordinary family, a history that is very important to you? Uh, it is strange uh, that a family has lived in the house uh, for 400 years. Um, yes. It's, it's an know. important element. That's where it comes from yes. in some ways. But actually, there's another, there's another element when you ask me about my behavior in this. And that is for 37 years, I was a weekly columnist of New Scientist. Mm, indeed. And having to produce a column every week to people who said, uh, the managing editor, uh, Dick Fifield, for a long time looked after the column, Dr. Bernard Dixon looked after it, Martin Sherwood looked after it at one stage, Georgina Ferry at another, who wrote the book on Max Perutz. And these were people who would say to me, are you sure? What evidence do you have? Because they didn't want, in their particular magazine, to publish anything that was inaccurate. And if one did publish anything that was inaccurate, it would certainly attract letters. Yes. And this was a constant discipline, such as many politicians don't have, of accuracy and fact. And I do have a great respect for fact. I want to open this up in a second, yeah. but I just want to ask you, uh, in view of the challenges that Parliament faces at the moment, not least in the aftermath of all the expenses business, but in dealing, for example, with the difficulties of the News International scandal, um, leave aside the economy, uh, what happened last week and so on uh, in the streets, do you think that the House of Commons is still up to the job? Well, I don't quite know who else would do it. No, I, I mean, I think, it, I think it's very easy um, to say, oh, well, it was better in my day. But, um, you know, in my 80th year, I don't particularly want to be an old gentleman waving a stick at the new generation. That's a very good moment in which to open it up. Can we have the lights up, please? And um, can I just ask you to, can I suggest, because I know people, well, thanks, you can have a big one at the end. Um, th th there will be questions of a political nature, I have no doubt. I just, I don't want to sound schoolmasterly and Willie Rossish, but it would be nice if they were questions rather than speeches. And I think by the mass of you, will you please support me, that would be the general view. Thank you very much. Right, now, there are, um, the mic's roving around, so can we see some hands? There's one here, went up with alacrity. Just keep them going up and the mics will find their way to you. One there and then one up the back, yes. Mr. Deal, changes in um, <coughs> politics at Westminster. Some people say that the change is that all the mainstream parties are trying to occupy the center ground and that left and right don't matter anymore. And it's more about being either libertarian or authoritarian. Do you have any comments on that theory? Interesting question. Yes, it is an interesting question. I think that people in opposition tend to be libertarians. Once they get into government, 
they become authoritarians. Jim, uh, you have a go at answering that. Well, no, I think it's right. But, well, thank you, Tam, as ever. Um, I mean, I think it is true that it, it, when I was young, when you were already a seasoned politician, um, I'm trying to bat the ball back over the net. Um, you know, there was a spectrum in which you were judged, which was essentially economic. More intervention, you were leftish. Less intervention, you were rightish. And it seems to me with the drawing together of, of politics and the overlapping of parties on that question, on the idea that there is more or less a settled view of where the economy should sit, obviously an argument of priorities and so on, and people off at both ends, but nonetheless a body in the middle, then the argument has tended to shift yeah. to a question of freedom, the individual and the state. And this is why, you know, Bob Marshall Andrews, your friend, and David Davis on the Tory benches, who comes from the right of the Tory party, from a libertarian perspective, were making all the deals to have those rebellions against your government, uh, because they saw absolutely eye to eye on that. And I think, isn't that going to happen more in the House of Commons now? I mean, you were father of the House before you arrived, so a great, I mean, Six a, years a, ago. an informal, but a great honor. And isn't that kind of um, cross-party, dare I say, common sense among individuals bound to increase, not least because the two-party system in a multi-party country is bound to produce more messy results at election time. It's just a fact of life, isn't it? You know, this is not entirely new. I mean, during the devolution arguments, I made no bones about it that I would talk to Julian Amory. Of course. And a lot of others. Who had an uh, Indian an in tiger that he had shot himself in his front hall. Do you remember? <laughs> I didn't see the tiger. Anyway. No. Um, there are a lot of curious friendships, partly formed because of traveling together mm. in the Interparliamentary Union or the... Uh, or the sleeper to Scotland. What? Or the sleeper to Scotland in the old days. Yes, or the plane from Northern Ireland. I mean, I never forget the relationship between Ian Paisley and Bernadette Devlin. Tell us more. Well, they, Get your Twitter feeds ready. Well, I must say, in all the bitterness of Northern Ireland, when I saw Ian Paisley walking out after the debate with his great paw over Bernadette Devlin, the minute Bernadette Devlin's shelter. You know, I wondered really what this was all about. Well, I suppose we have to leave it there. Um, there's a question here, and then there was a hand up, in fact, two over there. Yes, can, can we get a microphone to this gentleman, or has someone else got one in the hand already? You've got one there. Great, okay, we'll get one here. Just, just let, let this... Uh, Chap, go first because he's got one. Yes, sir. Uh, quickly about the quality of de debate in the Houses of Parliament. Oh, sorry, you were usurped. You'll get more time in a second. Yes. Sorry, it's a real quickie, but has, the, adv has the advent of television, of televising debates in the House of Commons, has it altered the quality of the debate, in your opinion? No, I don't. Well, it's my opinion um, that generally it hasn't other than um, for this goon show of parliamentary questions. Hmm. 
of Prime Minister's questions, do not you, parliamentary questions, Prime Minister's questions. Uh, I don't want to intervene because there's a question coming except to say this. I mean, do you think fundamentally that Parliament is in not bad shape or do you worry about it? I suppose people have always um, been asked if they worried about it. You care about no, it? I, no, I'm a believer in the democratic process and that you get MPs, warts and all. Here, the gentleman who stood up a moment ago. Yeah. Um, Tom, um, when you were talking about the Iraq war, you seemed to be suggesting that if Tony, Man, Tony Blair had had any military experience, he wouldn't have rushed into it in, in the way that he did. Now, we're getting to a stage where the present generation of leaders None of them have any military experience. And at the same time, there's a call for the reintroduction of national service. Now, this, I distrust this, because this comes from the right wing, and it comes from people who have no experience of the facts. But um, what are your feelings about this? Thank you for that. Well, I read George Caravan's article uh, suggesting that the answer was national service. Uh, I'm afraid I differ from him. You see, when I did national service... You crashed as, a tank, didn't you? As tank crew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's, a, there's a picture of me outside my tank in the book. Um, when I did national service, um, the mind was concentrated by the fact that Stalin's armour was 25 kilometres away across the Elbe, and there was a real self-evident reason um, for uh, young people doing national service. There was a military objective. Nowadays, the whole situation is altered because weaponry has become entirely different. And besides, weaponry is now so expensive that I would be very reluctant to entrust it even on cost grounds. Um, to those who weren't professionals. What about the argument that there could be some sort of national service that was uh, on the, very roughly speaking, on the kind of thing that's happened in Germany, where you could choose either to serve in the forces or there is some sort of social arm, a kind of domestic peace corps, or whatever we called it, something of that kind. Does that attract you, the idea of service? Not particularly. No. No, it doesn't actually. I think the logistics are so complicated. It wouldn't be worth the candle. I think, can we get a microphone up to you at the back? Question. And then keep the hands coming up. Yes, there's one there and then one here. You'll probably get it first just by the way things are and then it'll go over there. Here. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, you talked about the loyalty of the civil service earlier. Mm -hmm. Do you think the influence of the civil service is waning? And is the pace of that erosion quickening, and is it irreversible? Are you a civil servant, by any chance? I case? am. Ah, yes. <laughs> How did you guess? Funny that. No, no, I mean, it's, no, it's good. But I mean, it's obviously an important question, not just for you, but for others. But. I'll tell you what I passionately believe. That a civil servant should be in a position to give unpalatable advice to a minister. And... You see, I do blame Mrs. Thatcher for a lot of this. All this concept of one of us 
I mean, her treatment of uh, Mr. Reed in denying him the permanent secretaryship to which he was entitled because he'd got a crosser, it was absolutely disgraceful. And it wasn't only me who thought that, but John Smith passionately believed that. And is that something, and I think this lies behind the question in a way, that has changed pretty spectacularly in your time? That's a oh, question expecting the answer yes. But, oh, completely. Yeah. And I mean, looking back to the days, you know, when you were a young MP and Crossman was dealing with the civil service, and you were PPS to Dick Crossman, of course, famously in the 60s, and watched the way the government machine worked, compared with now, the dame at housing, for example, Dame Evelyn Sharp. Well, I was Sharp. brought up, in one sense, by Dame Evelyn Sharp and, and those people, yeah. and I have great respect for them. And they had uh, fantastic power. I oh, mean, the mandarins really were mandarins. Uh, Certainly. Whereas now, they're on a, I mean, in a completely well, different certainly position. They, certainly they were mandarins. And the undersecretaries and others were treated with respect. And incidentally, the press officers were government servants. Yes. And they were treated with respect. Dick Crossman, who was a most formidable operator, uh, had a press officer called Mr. Brown. And Mr. Brown would come in in the morning to the ministerial meetings mm. and said, yes, Mr. Crossman, we will put that out for you. No, Minister, I'm afraid that that will not go out from the department. Too political. Because it's too political. Party political. Party political. And Dick Crossman automatically accepted it. And you believe what that Peter distinction Brown is completely gone? Well, come, Alistair Campbell, yes. Yes. It was outrageous to put Alistair Campbell in charge of civil servants. Here and then, here and then over here. Yes. Uh, I wonder how you feel about the British government's inaction in Rwanda in 1992 and maybe how you might draw a comparison between that John Major's government and maybe Blair's actions in Sierra Leone, Thank Iraq, etc., etc. Et his interventions as an interventionist, as he claimed to be. You mean the, you, the implication you, is the wrong kind of intervention in the wrong place at the wrong time for the wrong reason? Whether you intervene or not, I yes. mean, you're an interventionist or you're not Major decided yeah. to not to intervene. I'm going to give you a very disappointing but candid answer. An MP cannot be a universal expert. I don't know about the ins and outs of East Africa. Maybe I should have done, but I didn't. And my opinion is really not worth having on this. I'm not snubbing you in any way. I'm just saying that um, I only have opinions on things that I know about, and I don't know sufficient about this. I can think of many MPs who wouldn't give an answer like that. Um, there's a question, I agree with there's you. A it's here. an honest answer. Uh, there's a question over here. Um, and then we've got time for a couple more, I think. Um, thank you for keeping them brief, and they're in the spirit of good questioning. It's very, it's very good. And I may say in the spirit of good answering, too. Right. In the light of the current fiasco in Europe, both economic and financial, and your happiness in joining Mr. Heath, in joining Europe or voting accordingly. 
and you were a Scottish MP, and there was a vote for Europe or against going into Europe tomorrow, how would you vote? I'd vote to, to stay in Europe, to go in Europe, because I'm a European. Full stop. Full stop. Why? Because I believe that uh, the continent should act together rather than as separate entities. But uh, because without that, there would be no voice against the great powers elsewhere? Yes, partly. But I partly believe, shall we say, in the old-fashioned concept of the amity of peoples. Talking of the amity of peoples, and we're coming to the end, and I just want to touch on this. Um, your arguments about Iraq in recent years, which are extremely strongly felt on your part, and your disaffection from the Blair enterprise and the Bush years and so on, put you in a way in a collision course with the United States. But as I've often heard you say, and as you recount in the book, you have this curious family relationship, we come back to your family as so often, with Harry Truman. Yes. And uh, tell us a Harry Truman story. Uh, and why he was connected with you. Well, briefly, Magdalene Diel uh, went to Rappahannock, Virginia, uh, with her, to join her younger son uh, in the 1720s. Uh, the family married uh, into the Donovan family, and they married uh, into two other families, and then eventually into the Ship family, and he was Harry S. Truman. Yes. Now the S... Didn't stand for anything. I know it didn't, and I'll tell you why it ah. didn't. Because one grandfather was Ship, and another grandfather was Solomon. I've never and known you, anyone who knew the answer to that question. This is wonderful. Well, I've solved the, yeah, well, the, I've great. Solved the S problem. So he couldn't for, decide. And that's why well, he did he's it. Well, too shrewd to decide. <laughs> but, I mean, the Truman Library, because Kathleen and I... In Independence, in, Missouri. In 2004, we were the only known European relatives. Uh, we were asked to the 120th anniversary of the Truman birth. The Truman Library, Jim, employs 500 people, the presidential library. Yeah. I mean, it's not as big as the Johnson Library no, or the no, Roosevelt Library, no. but it's huge, and it's a major resource for anybody interested in the history of uh, 1945. Did you ever meet him? No. No. By that time, he was very old. But you, you're in this curious position where you took odds with an American administration, the first of the new century, in a, in a very, very passionate way. And yet, many of the things that the United States stands for are the things that are very dear to you. Have you found that difficult? No, not in the least. I have a great many American friends. And mm. one of, I mean, one of the tragedies of Blair's actions on Iraq is that there were many Americans who were swayed by the fact that a British Prime Minister mm, mm. Uh, should, should be um, keen on military action. Uh, because had Britain not gone, I wonder 
if even Bush's United States would have gone alone. And my attitude on Iraq was different from a lot of other people's because I had been there, went in 1993, and again in 1998 with the former Taoiseach, Albert Reynolds, the Irish Prime Minister, the father of the peace process. And there were several sides to that story. And the fact is that we've been supplying Iraq. Why? Because we were extremely scared of militant Iran and the Ayatollah Khomeini and much else. Tam, you are, as you reminded us, in your 80th year. Your intellectual energy has not diminished with time. Your passion for your causes continues. Your partnership with Kathleen continues. Yeah. What lies ahead? politically, what are you going to fight for? There's nothing as X as an XMP. However, <laughs> however, what do I care about? Interesting question. What's the answer? Events, dear boy, events. <laughs> We're back to Macmillan. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for that spontaneous full stop, which uh, came as an expression, I think, of, of delight and gratitude to an hour of great pleasure and insight from Tam. And I'd just like you, as we leave, to... Um, thank a remarkable man whose book, I should say, is well worth a read, and he reminds us why it is sometimes important to be awkward. Thank you all very much. Tam, thank you. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.